With the conservative leadership race underway, what was once expected to be a political battle royale is now shaping up as a back and forth between two potential frontrunners. Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole have emerged as the high-profile pair in the fight to replace Andrew Scheer. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. John Iveson from the National Post joins me on the phone to talk about how the campaigns have fared early on, why some others have dropped out, and if we could see some new faces step up in the race. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite shows, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. So, John, we're a couple weeks into the conservative leadership race now officially, and despite the promise of kind of a wide open, hotly contested race with a lot of high profile candidates, we don't seem to be getting that. Why is that? And maybe spell out a bit of the landscape for us. Right. Well, a whole a whole bunch of candidates are out, and they were never even in. Jean Charest, Pierre Poilier, Ron Ambrose—they'd all been rumored to be potential candidates. And they all looked seriously at running to the point where Sheree had his, a video that was leaked uh, announcing his candidacy. The reasons they all pulled out, they pulled out were, were, were various. I mean, I think Sheree, for example, only after his candidacy became heavily rumored did he realize that the reaction was almost wholly negative from the, from the party membership, uh, who saw him as a, not only a liberal, but a Quebec liberal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think he, he felt his road to victory, you know, while he might have done well in a general election, he, he, was going to find it really hard to win the leadership. Ronna Ambrose, I think, is purely personal. I think that she has a, a good thing going in, in Calgary, where she lives with her husband. She's got a, a good income, and she realized that this was going to be a long process. You don't undertake these things unless you've pretty much cleared your schedule for the next six years. And I think she felt she'd done her time in the trenches, and it was time for somebody else. Polyev, again, it sounds like it's family. I mean, I was a bit skeptical of that initially, but people tell me this is, he's got a one-year-old daughter. He hadn't seen enough of her, and he decided that this was a too big a, a commitment. And, uh, you know, there may be a time in the future for him. He's still around about 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So they're all out. I think all would have been tier one candidates, all potential winners. And they've left Peter McKay pretty much to himself. Now, I'm sure Aaron O'Toole would disagree with that, but uh, it seems to me it's, it's, it's uh, McKay's to lose. Now, looking at the race as kind of a, a two-horse race, is this the kind of thing that you think conservative organizers wanted to see, or did they hope to see maybe a broader spectrum of the conservative movement come forward, uh, maybe not as many candidates as in 2017, but kind of more front runners than there are now to debate ideas and whatnot? They were motivated by an, the, the, the sense that they did not want a lot of fringe candidates coming in. I mean, there were there were 13 people on the ballot at the leadership election in 2017. So they raised the uh, the stakes as far as the number of signatures that were required and the amount of money that needed to be paid in the hope that that might scare some fringe candidates off. I guess it has to an extent, but it still seems that there are people in this race who have no realistic chance of winning. They may bring something to the race. Uh, Rick Peterson, who's the, the businessman from B.C., uh, who ran last time, he finished, I think, 12th the last time. He's running again, and he's he's proposing some interesting ideas, a flat tax and some other innovative ideas. The social conservatives always want to have two or three candidates in the race, and they, they tend to pile their votes upon one another, and they will have an influence in the race. I mean, they were very influential in choosing Andrew Scheer last time when their champion, Brad Trost, who came fourth, fell off the ballot, and they transferred their support to Scheer. They're very well organized and highly motivated, so they will have an influence. 
But the idea that you've got three or four top-level candidates with a genuine chance of winning, all representing different strains of the Conservative coalition from different regions of the country, that has not happened. And, you know, we've seen Peter McKay, who comes from, from the East Coast, coming in. He's been classified as a red Tory. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. You know, I mean, anybody who remembers the merger, they're probably over 35 now. I mean, this is ancient history for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But he's classified as a, a more moderate candidate. And his chief challenger, Erin O'Toole, is classified as a more moderate candidate. So so O'Toole has had to reposition himself as a true blue conservative, portraying McKay as a moderate, a mushy middle lightweight. I'm not sure that's really who O'Toole is, and I'm not sure whether his attempts to convince people that he is this more right-wing figure than McKay will actually be persuasive. But it means there's not really a candidate from the West, for example. I mean, I know a number of people, including Candace Bergen, looked at it. Maybe Michelle Rempel is still looking at it. But there isn't that kind of spread of geography and uh, across the political spectrum that they perhaps hoped for. Now, when you talk about the idea that O'Toole is positioning himself as a true blue conservative and Peter McKay is trying to shake the reputation that some are trying to stick on him, that he's a, a kind of a mushy middle red Tory type. Does that debate help the party at all? Like who's more conservative than somebody else? Like, isn't this an opportunity for them to discuss actually what the party is going to do other than beat Justin Trudeau? Well, that's the problem is that you have two different races and, you know, the things that appeal to the membership do not appear to be the things that appeal to the broader public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, McKay came out yesterday, he didn't seem to leave much wiggle room when he said that under Peter McKay, a third person referenced himself, which is always a bit suspect. But Peter McKay will not impose a carbon tax, or actually he'll repeal the current carbon tax. You know, I sat down with him last Sunday and talked to him about some of his energy policy, and it seemed to be pretty much the same energy policy that Andrew Scheer had. You know, he didn't didn't like the idea of carbon pricing. He thought technology would be a, a solution. He thought that exporting Canada's energy to China and wherever would be a solution. And it may well be. It may well be a, a, a good thing for the planet and a good thing for Canada. But it doesn't get us to our Paris targets because you can only claim credit for things that you do within your own borders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he dismissed carbon pricing despite the evidence that it uh, actually does work in various jurisdictions. Uh, you know, he claims that uh, there was uh, oil coming in from countries like Iran and, uh, and Venezuela and that we were propping up some of the worst regimes in the world. Well, in fact, there is no oil coming in from Iran or from Venezuela. So I think he's playing to the gallery there. He realizes that the number of conservative members who believe in carbon pricing is rising. There was one poll that one of the candidates did that suggested that in 2017 it's 12%, now it's 25%. So it is rising, but it's still not enough to get you elected as leader of this party. And it may be something that ensures you don't get elected. I mean, Michael Chong in the last go around in 2017, was booed in some of these debates because people are so anti the idea of carbon pricing. That might help McKay and possibly O'Toole if he comes out with a similar position on carbon pricing, win support in places like the prairies. But does it do them any favors in Quebec where all of these ridings, which may have fewer votes or fewer members voting, still carry the same weight as ridings in places like Alberta that are very opposed to the carbon tax? How do they kind of bridge that divide? Well, I mean, the point is you can't win any more seats in the West. I mean, maybe you can in BC and maybe you can win one more in in Alberta. But I mean, you know, clearly eyes have got to, for the next election have got to be on 
not even Quebec. I mean, they've got to do reasonably well in Quebec, but they've got to do well in the 905 belt around Toronto. That's where all the seats are. And there was a very good piece by Ken Bosenkul, who was an advisor to Stephen Harper and Christy Clark and various other governments, about the strategy that worked in 2011. And it was essentially convincing people in the 905 commuter belt, where there's 50 or so seats, that your interests are aligned with them. You then have to hope that the NDP do okay, because the, the NDP vote has to be somewhere around 20% for that strategy to work. Mm-hmm. So for conservatives, thoughtful conservatives are now saying, well, we can't rely on the NDP to be at 20 plus percent. So we have to come up with policies that are even more appealing in 905. You know, they didn't do very well there in, in October. So there have to be some imaginative policies that appeal to these people and... You know, I think right now it sounds like McKay and probably O'Toole are promising much of the same. You know, when you look at the two of these guys, Peter McKay is definitely the individual with the higher profile. He held more senior positions in the Harper government than Aaron O'Toole did. What does O'Toole have to do to kind of get his face and his identity out to Canadians, not just conservative members, but Canadians as a whole? Well, the strategy at the moment seems to be to discredit McKay, which which is probably quite a smart one, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to me to be the only way that he's going to make a dent there is to... I mean, McKay, as you mentioned, he was defence minister, he was foreign affairs minister, uh, he was justice minister. There's a lot of baggage there. O'Toole was a relatively late arrival and he was a veterans affairs minister. He did pretty well there. So there's not a lot to take aim at with O'Toole, but there is with McKay. You know, I think he is going to get pummeled for some of the things he did when he was in defense, for example, the F-35 saga, where McKay was a big proponent of it. I mean, he's unapologetic about that now because he's probably proven right that we should have bought the thing at the time. Mm-hmm. But there were other things that he did, the Cormorant Gate with the, with the helicopter, where it, there were accusations that he'd used military uh, defense department assets for private use. I think that that is overdone and that, that he was actually, it was the Prime Minister's office that wanted to, to attend an event and he, he quit his holiday a day early to do so. So I think he's got a defense against most of these things, but you know that won't stop his political rivals from, from pecking away at him. The other big one, obviously, is his French or lack of. I mean, he admitted to me the other day that his French isn't as good as it was when he was in Parliament. He's been four years in a unilingual law firm. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've got to get back to where I was in 2015. And I said, you weren't very good in 2015. And he wasn't. So if that's as good as he gets his French, he's probably got a problem there. Uh, French colleagues, uh, French journalistic colleagues of mine have said they've talked to him privately and that he should be okay. But I suspect O'Toole's French is better than his French. And that might be a way in for O'Toole. I mean, does that hurt him in the leadership race? as much as it might in in a general election, the fact that his French isn't so good? Ironically, it does, because the uh, Quebec writings have got a disproportionate influence. Each writing across the country is worth 100 points. So your total is, whatever that calculation is, 338 writings times 100. But whereas Calgary Centre, for example, might have 1,500 members, there were 44 writings out of 78 in Quebec in 2017 that had fewer than 100 people taking part in this election. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have to upset too many people to find that a lot of Quebec seats have gone against you, and that's 7,800 of the 33,000 votes if you lose them all. So, yeah, I mean, if he's, if he's absolutely terrible and every Quebec voter decides or every Quebec member decides he would be a liability, then uh, you're losing a lot of points. Both the O'Toole and the McKay campaigns kind of stumbled a bit out of the gate uh, with some highly, at least if you're on Twitter, highly mocked campaign videos. McKay, especially with his kind of nonsensical language he's 
Canada is proud because Canadians are proud. Will we get more substantive messaging or policy from both of these candidates as we go forward? Or is it going to be a very superficial back and forth debating more over who's more conservative than the other? Well, I think I was quite surprised at the McKay social media stuff because I didn't think it was that great. And uh, yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. So they're going to have to up their game a little bit. O'Toole has actually got some very good people around him on the campaign side. And I think his messaging has been a lot slicker, actually. You know, it's going to get pretty nasty, I think. I mean, it looks like O'Toole doesn't mind taking the gloves off. There was a poll yesterday which was released. It it looked like it was an independent poll. It was from Canada Proud. It was asking online people just to take part in this poll, and it showed O'Toole had 85% support and McKay had 16%. And it was asking to share the results widely so people could take part. Well, Canada Proud is a guy, Jeff Ballingall, who is being paid by Aaron O'Toole. So not above board and a little bit, well, more than a little bit misleading. If that's the tenor of the campaign, then it could get a little bit nasty. Is that something the party needs to worry about, having too nasty a campaign, creating you know, new fissures within the party? There were some not exactly warm feelings the last time around after Maxime Bernier lost to Andrew Scheer. Are, are conservatives worried about that kind of schism after this campaign? The, the Conservative Party is a loose confederation of previously warring tribes, you know, and they're, they're kind of harper bound them together. The various identities, identities are still there. And I've asked various people whether they felt that the party could potentially be at risk. And there's a sense that that probably won't happen. I mean, it's kind of interesting that McKay has got support from people like Monty Solberg, who was an early reformer, former Harper minister, and from uh, Pierre Paulus, who's a, a Quebec MP, a current MP. And he seems to have got broad support right across the country from people you might not have thought were typical McKay supporters. Mm-hmm. If you buy the idea that he's this red Tory, mushy middle moderate, which I, I'm not sure that I do. I mean, he did some, when he was in the a minister, he was a very obviously staunch in favour of the military. He was a pretty hard line justice minister. A lot of these mandatory minimum sentences were came in under his watch. You know, he was borderline unconstitutional with the prostitution law that he brought in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's a bit of a caricature. And I think the, the people who've worked with him know that which is why he's getting caucus support from people who previously supported O'Toole. I mean, I think there's four MPs now who supported O'Toole last time who've come out for for Peter McKay. So if there is a unity candidate, others may claim that mantle, and I'm sure O'Toole will claim that mantle. But I think McKay is actually proving that, that he can keep this party united. I mean, he did, let's face it, he did unite in the first place. That's true. Now, is there any chance that we could see another big name come forward, announce a candidacy. I know some people have talked about uh, Pierre Polyev's decision not to run means that Stephen Harper's going to come back and put his hand up, try and save the party. Is that a likely scenario? No, I think Harper, the Harper scenario is totally unlikely. Uh, it's possible that others might. Michelle Rempel has mused about it and we haven't heard definitively from her. Uh, John Williamson is still musing about it. John's not as well known as, as perhaps as Rempel, but... Um, a respected figure in the party, although he's just been out of parliament for four years. He lost in 2015. Um, so, I, you know, do I, do I see a top-tier candidate coming in, a John Baird? I don't think so. It's possible. But, um, you know, Baird was going to chair Polyev's campaign. It's possible he would come in on his own. I'm sure people are asking him to. I think that there's not total comfort with the idea that McKay runs away with it. I think that they want to see a bit of a race. 
a lot of people might not be enthusiastic about McKay leadership, but I think there is a grudging acceptance about it, even with people who are not huge fans. And I'd say one thing about Peter is that he didn't upset a lot of people. You know, nobody runs around saying how much they hate McKay. Mm-hmm. He he was not offensive to anybody as a, as a minister. He quite often took one for the team, I think, as in this Cormorant Gate helicopter thing. He was a good and loyal soldier to Harper. He didn't run against Harper in 20, uh, 2004. I think people appreciate the fact that he was a, a, a good conservative for a decade of Harper, the Harper government. They might not like the way that he left, by the way, but he left before the defeat in 2015 and, and landed a good job with a law firm on Bay Street. So yeah. that might rankle, but I think by and large, most conservatives could live with Peter McKay. We'll see how that shakes out over the next couple of months, and we'll definitely be keeping tabs on the race. John, thanks for your time. Okay, thanks, Dave. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to John Iveson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>